0: This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton.
1: This is a Business Radio special presentation of Dollars and Change from San Francisco and SOCAP 2017, the world's leading conference on impact investing and social enterprise. Here are your hosts, Sandy Hunt and Nick Ashburn. Hey, welcome back. This is Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 111. I'm Nick Ashburn. And
2: I'm Sandy Hunt.
1: And we are here on the floor of the Social Capital Markets Conference, or SOCAP, as if you're hip and cool. What, you can, you can what, hear
2: the action. You can
1: hear the action in the background. Uh, we've had a great lineup of guests so far. It's a, it's a rapid fire session for us mm-hmm. here at SOCAP. So without further ado, let's turn it over to Lauren Cochran, Managing Director at Blue Haven Initiative. Welcome to the show, Lauren.
3: Thanks, Guy. It's great to be here.
1: All right. Blue Haven Initiative. That means absolutely nothing to me. No, I'm kidding. We love Blue Haven Initiative. But in terms of the name, right, yep. it, it's not very descriptive. Nope. What is not. Blue Haven Initiative?
3: Um, so we are a single family office based in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And um, the two principals, Lisa Pritzker-Simmons and her husband, Ian, when they got married, they decided they wanted to pool their assets and make sure that everything was invested along the lines of their values. So we seek out... Um, investments that have commercial rates of return, but also have a social or environmental impact across asset classes.
2: And that's a, that's a you know, tricky combination to find. And um, our listeners might be going, oh gosh, like, you know, what's the market? Can you invest that much capital with commercial rates of return and positive social impact? Tell us how that landscape has changed and if, if there's enough supply to meet that demand.
3: Yeah. And that is the ongoing debate, I think, within impact investing. Um, I started in the industry, gosh, now about uh, eight, nine years ago, working for a firm called Imprint Capital. um, And we worked with a lot of different families that wanted to do all or some of their assets into impact investing, and the market has changed drastically since I started there in um, 2009. Um, now, Imprint is part of Goldman Sachs Asset Management, which I think is, <laughs> which is one crazy of the. In yeah, and of yeah, itself. exactly. Yeah. I think that speaks to the growth and the diversification of the industry more than anything else. But um, so we the, over over that the eight nine years there has been so much that's come up, and fund managers have gotten more experienced. Um, how we measure impact has gotten to be. Um, a much more rigorous and thoughtful, and um, we have a lot more peers. Um, yeah. There's a lot, a lot more people doing this, so both from a supply side of um, the fund managers that know what they're doing can can make these kinds of investments, and also um, family offices, pension funds. I mean, we're increasingly seeing very large institutional investors coming into the space um, and, you know, uh, mainstream financial fund managers who have decided to um, build an impact product as well.
1: Yeah. And on, I think on that sort of intermediary and services note, um, we don't often get to have asset owners on the show. You know, they're often... I'm not very, the owner, to be Right. Clear. You are not the owner, but you're representing <laughs> yes, the, you yes, know, yes, the yes. asset owner side of the equation. Yes. And I think what's interesting is, you know, they're often very private, whereas the family has been quite public in, in their pursuits in, in impact investing. Um, and and what I love uh, to hear is, is the evolution. So, what are what have been some of the difficult conversations that you've had to do as you're thinking about deploying capital in this space?
3: Mm-hmm. Difficult with with the regards Just to the
1: allocating assets, or mm-hmm. and you or you really oversee the private side. Yep. Uh, you know the private investing side. Mm-hmm. So. Are there enough opportunities? Yeah. Sandy was getting at, too.
3: Yeah. Um, You know, one of the things that I think we talk about the most, both in the direct portfolio that I run and then the funds that now the Imprint Goldman team helps us manage, um, we have a a lot of talk about what is market rate. Uh, You know, our directs are in sub-Saharan Africa, early stage venture capital. And a lot of US investors when they hear that they're like, Oh, are you underwriting for like a fifty or a sixty percent return? And it's like, Well, I maybe if you actually got thirty percent return in venture in the US, which no one has yes. for decades. Right. So the, the
2: sort of burden put on impact investing is Hilariously high, considering what market totally. rate actually means.
3: And I mean, a lot of these fund managers, most of the venture firms that have done well, with the exception of the big, the bigger ones, um, are niche and they have a focus and they they really know a couple of different industries. And so um, we have been really, you know, I think that, that impact investing comes at a lot of um, venture private uh, investing from that side. So it's, there's been a number of managers that have done well. When you think about some of the earliest successes um, around microfinance um, and other things that have led to this much broader industry, once you, once people realize um, that you can do both, you can make money and feel good about whatever it is that you're doing. Um, and that's actually how Liesl came to want to do this with her money as well. Um, she worked for a microfinance organization in Tanzania and had always been very interested um, in, in these kinds of organizations. And... When she inherited her money, she worked with a very mainstream financial advisor who did everything that they could to make sure that she couldn't actually do anything that had impact Um, because they were nervous and they didn't know the market and they weren't equipped to figure it out. And so over time, you Did know, they also
1: assume eh, you're a woman? You don't, yes. you don't really know what you're talking about.
3: Yes, give, give, some, <laughs> give some philanthropic capital the things you care yes. about, but this is where the
2: real money is.
3: Exactly. And when Liesl tells the story, she'll talk about how she just felt like patted on the head and sent on her way every time they had a family um, well, office. Who's meeting. laughing now? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. But it
1: it speaks to a broader trend in the industry as people speak to their financial advisors or you know their wealth yes, managers. Yes. If you don't have a response, a, yeah. A, at least a credible response. Be like, you know what, I'm really interested in lurking into that for you. Yeah. If, it, if you just get shut down immediately, I'll, people
2: are moving their money. Yeah, and a reminder to our listeners to have those conversations. If this is something you care about, we, we heard earlier from someone that, you know, it's not the two-pocket thing anymore. It's not, you know, the, the right money, right pocket money goes into my investments, and that's, you know, that's the real money, and then I have philanthropic money, and let, people are integrating their values, like Lisa Linnian, um with their investments. And so regardless of your, you know socioeconomic status, asking those questions. Where is my retirement plan invested? You know, uh, Do I have X or Y in my portfolio? Or just, hey, I care about this. I want you to present me with some options. I'm the consumer of your financial products. I have an opinion.
3: Yeah, and and we're seeing a number of um, firms that are doing some stuff on the surface, and even that no longer flies. I mean, with Goldman buying a firm like Imprint and now having a 20-person team that is really focused on integrating this, not just in the Goldman Imprint team, but across muni bonds and public markets and the way they do um, screening for passive equities. Everybody has sort of been indoctrinated into this, this Imprint way of doing things and what is impact investing and how does that affect the things that we're doing. And the hope is that, you know, if this is the way that we can get everybody to feel about, you know, their investing, the world will be a much better place yeah. if we're really looking for green and things that are, you know, treating workers well and um, uh, focus on social issues. Yeah.
2: I want to talk a little bit about the thing, you're what your investments, what you actually invest yeah. in. Um, and so I'm going to ask you about your sourcing and due diligence, but I want to make sure I break down those wonky terms for our <laughs> listeners. So sourcing is finding the things you want to invest in and due diligence is kicking the tires on them to make sure they're worthy of your investment. When it comes to emerging markets opportunities, um, sometimes there's a little bit less structure, there might be a little bit less information, or it's trickier to get your hands on the information. What does the process look like for you guys to source and diligence these investments?
3: Yeah, yeah. so we within the family office, um, I my team runs a $50 million carve-out for venture in sub-Saharan Africa. And um, what that means is that, you know, we have to actually go there and find the companies that, um, that we want to invest in. And everyone always asks us, like, you know, you guys live in the U.S. and you, you invest over there. How do you do that? And for us, it means just spending a lot of time there. Um, yeah. We, we know all of the funders that work there, um, the investors, the early-stage folks. Um, because the ecosystem there is very underdeveloped, there's a number of early-stage funders that get their money. that's grant capital, basically. Um, and so we work with a lot of those, the Shell Foundation, Axion Venture Lab, um, folks that are, are taking the, the highest risk. Um, and you know the, the companies that are the most successful, we, um, we are able to usually follow on and, and help and work with um, so, spending a lot of time there, um, we're focused. Uh, since we're two, soon to be three-person team, um, we focus mostly on um, last-mile distribution of energy um, and financial services and other things these days. But. Um, Yeah. And then we spend a lot of time with entrepreneurs Um, because we are working with a lot of the earlier stage funders. We often get to meet entrepreneurs before their fundraising, which is the best time. It's a much more relaxed conversation. You can actually hear what's happening. And that's the biggest part of our job is just listening to entrepreneurs and figuring out what they need and if we're a good fit to help.
1: You're listening to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 111. We are here at the SOCAP conference, Social Capital Markets, and we're talking with Lauren Cochran, who is the Managing Director of Blue Haven Initiative.
2: Lauren, you were just you know, referencing how you talk to entrepreneurs, how that's a big part of your decision-making process and your diligence. What do you ask them? You know, and I guess I ask because we have a ton of social entrepreneurs here at SoCap, a ton who are listening mm-hmm. to our show. You know, how can they sort of put themselves in the shoes of the investor and think about um, some of the things that you see as you know, pain points or consistent
3: challenges? What's your advice? Yeah. We see so many pitches. And the ones that I think break through are those that are really born from experience. So um, ac- where you invest across the continent and in different places, there's different types of entrepreneurs. Um, in East Africa, there's a lot of expats, which we're trying, you know, we're, we're diversifying our portfolio amongst folks, but people go there because they've, they've seen a problem somewhere and mm-hmm. they think that they can fix it. Also, mobile money there is, is a big thing. But um,
2: Yeah, we heard last night from Ross Barrett, I think 90... 90- you know, 90% of capital going being invested in Africa is invested to expats. Yeah.
3: And that is, um, the fault or the benefit of one of our portfolio companies called him Copa that's done, uh, quite well, um, from a growth and fundraising perspective. But, um, so we, uh, how do they break through, um, entrepreneurs that really understand the problem. Um, we will not invest in entrepreneurs that live in San Francisco and think they can do something in Africa. Right. Um, you're too far from a customer. You're too far from the problem. And it's really expensive to operate a business in San Francisco. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so the way that, you know, the sub-Saharan market works from a, a follow-on funding, a valuation perspective, how much money there is out there to build something, you have to get to break even a lot faster because there's just not going to be the same kind of um, bottomless money pit that seems to be Silicon Valley these days out there. And so it's a very different approach. And, and people really understand that when they're living and working in a community where, uh, yeah, where where that's kind of more the norm uh, than out here. So, Lauren, we're here at
1: the SoCap conference, and you know these are the exact conversations that you would be having with you know a lot of different people here. But like you said, you've been in the industry for around eight years, and you're also a Wharton alum. Yes. So we should Woo! definitely disclose that. <laughs> we need um, some sound effects. <laughs> you know, give us a flavor of who you know what how the industry has evolved, and especially from your perspective as a student interested in this to now.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, when I was in business school, impact investing wasn't even a term yet. Um, And I had done traditional private equity in the U.S. and also went and worked for the Clinton Foundation across sub-Saharan Africa and really had no idea what I wanted to do when I showed up at Wharton. But I knew it was something in the middle. And, um, you know, there was just there weren't there were some mainstream hedge funds that were operating in sub-Saharan Africa. Very few private equity firms at the time. Um, and then I looked at the traditional PE route. And then there was a bunch of foundations and nonprofits and mm-hmm. NGOs that were doing stuff. And every time I would sit in an interview with a with a private equity or hedge fund, they say, well, how do you... We know you're not going to run off and go do something good for the world. Um, and, and God forbid. Sit, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and then you'd sit in with an NGO or a nonprofit and they'd say, we can't afford to pay you what you're going to need to get paid. And we don't... Uh, like." We're worried that you're not going to be interested in what we're doing. And then um, through a classmate, actually, graduating 2009 was kind of a rough year um, sure, from yeah, an yeah. economic perspective. And uh, he saw this job in San Francisco, and he was like, you know, this sort of seems like something that fits kind of your background. And I showed up at Imprint. There were three, four people, and I just sat down and I was like, "Oh, this is the thing. It's fa- like investing." It's yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it is investing. Um, Yeah, but this is how so, far the industry has come in exactly. ten years. Exactly, and and you know they said impact investing, and all of a sudden it was like, "Oh yeah, that this makes is sense. great." Um, and uh, so, yeah, I, I ended up moving out to San Francisco, which was not the plan. And, um, yeah, I was there for five years. And we built an amazing group of, of clients and made a ton of investments. Um, one of the first to be, enti- or if not the first, to be entirely focused on impact investing with commercial rates of return. Though we had, we had uh, clients across the spectrum towards, you know, right before the Goldman acquisition, we really were working for families that were using the money that they lived off of, to make these kinds of investments and feel good about what was in their portfolio. Absolutely.
2: So what trends do you see, um, you know, in, in the space and what do you think is coming in the next eight years? Yeah.
3: Yeah. I mean, one of the most exciting things is that fund managers actually have track records now. Um, and so, and obviously this is a thing, this first
2: time fund manager, uh, it matters, right? It matters if this is your first fund or, or you are a seasoned fund manager.
3: Well, and particularly now that, um, you know, our, the assets that are invested on by Goldman Sachs, they're going through the Goldman Sachs investment process. This is not some JV version of due diligence and um, some separate investment committee. This is the same people that have been investing for them forever. And so the bar is really high. And first-time fund managers are rarely, if ever, considered. Um, and so the fact that now there's enough... Um, you know, fund managers that are on fund two, fund three, um, and some of these more experienced private equity venture folks that are coming into the industry—the banes of the world—and um, uh, yeah, so so you know, having that be the um, the the focus and having that, those kinds of opportunities available has really made all the difference.
1: And how do you see not just the sophistication and sort of fund managers, but talent overall? You know, that's mm-hmm. obviously something that we're thinking about all the time at Wharton. You know, you're sort of indicative of that, but we like to
2: tell ourselves we're doing a very good job when we meet people like you. Lauren. <laughs> we're, we're trying, yeah.
1: And so, how are you seeing? I mean, someone who might be hiring, right? People yeah. out of B school or with experience. How are you seeing that evolution?
3: Well, and yeah, I do a lot of chats with MBA students and friends and everything else. And um, for us, and, and there's such a broad spectrum. I'd say one of the other trends is that impact investors are starting to segment themselves much better. Mm-hmm. So commercial folks like us are in our own bucket versus you know a group that's doing PRI's. Even though we all are impact investors, now we're better able to communicate to the market, to the types of investees we're looking for, and to talent, what, what we need. Um, and I have, a, I have a traditional background. So when we hire, I really am looking for people that have the training of a consulting firm or an investment bank. Um, we're so small. My team is two, three people. Um, we need folks that can come in and hit the ground running yeah. um, from a financial modeling, investment due diligence, how do you look at a company um, and so we really look for folks that have that background. And, and Wharton's a great pool. We had an intern from Wharton this summer. Um, and uh, and I think you look at the industry, and there's so many senior folks that are actually from Wharton because um, they had great training. Heart, the hard um, skill training. What does bo- Bobby Turner
1: consider it? The ninja finance or something?
3: A black belt in <laughs> black finance.
1: Belt That's in what he finance. calls it. Like yeah. A there black belt in finance.
2: So here's, here's a question for you on behalf of our students because every one of them yeah. listening would ask you this question. I need to develop the hard skills, it sounds like, yeah. right? You want someone who's coming from, you know, uh, sort of like ma- mainstream finance or you know, sort of the hardcore consulting shops. How do they keep a pulse on what's happening in impact? So we hear this from our undergrads and our MBAs who are graduating and saying, you know, the reality is, you know, the market for impact investing jobs is a little bit smaller right now. I might not be able to get into it, yeah. but if I want to go work at Blue Haven in five years, how do I stay engaged in impact or develop a sector expertise while working in sort of this mainstream industry yeah. so that I can make that pivot? What would your advice be? Yeah.
3: And I, the market has gotten quite competitive when yeah. I started, you know, just having, um, investment banking, private equity experience and like saying, Passion. Into <laughs> yeah. Fact, yeah. yeah, it yeah. would get you over the bar. But now every, everybody's got all of that. Yeah. Um, yeah. and, and so, you know, the number of folks that have gone and lived somewhere else and volunteered and done all these things and really proven, um, that they're interested in impact, um, is, is quite large. And so, I tell people that's kind of the bar. You have to have the hard skills yep. and you have to, ha- even if you volunteer regularly, that is helpful. Um, and, but, you know, I think the the best way to do it is is show up. I mean, there's so many folks here. Oh, yeah. 3,000. Yeah. Um, <laughs> a Wharton alum who I'm hoping to see later at the drinks uh, emailed me and she said, you know, I, I, I took your advice. I'm an investment banker at Bank of America. And I, I think she's taking time off to be at SoCap, which is Awesome, but yeah. extreme. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, you know, there's so many great news sources now, just paying attention to the news, being able to speak intelligently about what's happening, and thinking through the stuff that you're working on at a mainstream firm, like increasingly there are opportunities at some of these firms to do more impact, whether it's sustainability, something with the environmental impact of the business, and seeking out those opportunities, I think um, it comes through when you're interviewing for a job.
2: Yeah. So, what are you finding here at SOCAP? What's, what's of interest to you? What conversations do you think are sort of um, pushing, you know, pushing yeah. the limits and, and sort of the next edge on the SOCAP dialogue.
3: Yeah. Well, one of the things that I'm talking about on a panel today and just wrote a blog about is our um, increasing focus on human capital in our portfolios, mm-hmm. um, mm. our portfolio companies. And, you know, one of the things you get, um, you, you, you get a bunch of entrepreneurs in a room and you, uh, you ask them what their biggest problem is and inevitably they say money particularly across sub-Saharan Africa. And, and then, you know, you invest in them and you, you start, they have the money, and then you very quickly realize that actually the biggest problem is hiring great people. And wow. across the board. We
2: just heard this from our last guest.
3: Um, yeah, and so at Bluehaven, we've, we've had firsthand experience with, with how challenging that can be um, for a lot of these folks. Uh, you know, we had a portfolio company that was so inundated for entry-level positions. They were only looking at resumes they received on Tuesdays and Thursdays. <laughs> which is not a good this way to manage your, to your human capital yeah. pool. Um, That's a riot. And so, which is, you know, great. The company's doing well. But, um, yeah, we got to get better at that. And so we have built um, both sort of a suite of services that we, we look at and bring to bear, uh, relationships we've built with other companies, startups, service providers that can come in and help at different, different sort of parts of this value chain. Yep. So talent sourcing and screening, we're a company called Shortlist. Um, and you're
2: using sort of a third party for this? Yeah, okay. a, lot
3: of our, a lot of the companies um, uh, use third parties for different things, depending on the company yep. and how, many, how much they're hiring. Um, so Shortlist on the so talent sourcing and screening, we um, have invested. Well, so we've invested in Shortlist and this other company called Spire that um, does professional development training, um, takes an entry-level person, teaches them how to be a manager over time. Um, I think in the U.S. even, uh, undergraduate degrees often don't really prepare you for work and management. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so how do you get people over that hump? And in emerging markets, it's even that much worse.
2: And, and when you look at these organizations that have can have that growth where it's not a gradual okay, I learned to manage two people, now five, now ten. It can be two, three, fifty five. You know, that that exponential growth can be really difficult to manage. So interesting. This is a big this is a big conversation and I agree with you. Funding is what everyone would say, but you know, answer 1B is definitely this human capital. So what what are you exploring in the blog? And we'll make sure to we yeah. tweet that out at Wharton social. Um, but what, what are you exploring in the session? What do you hope to sort of well? The other on?
3: the other thing I will, I always am telling investors to be better. Um, and because I think a lot of investors think they show up with money and like that's enough. Mm. Um, but I think focusing on human capital in your due diligence process and finding entrepreneurs that know that it's going to be the biggest bottleneck to their growth is um, so important. So we ask all these questions about how you're managing human resources and um, how how things, how, how, you know, where are you finding people? Are, do you have a diverse management team? Do you have diverse entry-level employees? How are you sourcing people? And we start that in the due diligence process. And if someone gets annoyed or says, we don't have a plan yet, we're a startup, uh, that's a bad oh, sign. Wrong answer. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. So it Might not be um, the funder for you. No, exactly. And so we are integrating that into our due diligence process and portfolio management. So bringing in these service providers talking to people figuring out how to get better more faster talent yep. um, depending on the business model.
2: And what I love about that is I think hearing it from an investor is very motivating. I think sometimes those things can seem like the nice to haves like oh you know thinking about you know our, our right. hiring strategy or thinking about employee retention or thinking about our operations, you know, isn't necessarily something that, that we can make the time for. We're focused on growth, we're focused on fundraising. But if a funder saying this, this has got to be buttoned up too. I think we're going to have an ecosystem of much, you know, of, of much greater stability in these organizations. Well, and also
1: as an investor who's not located on the continent, you're spending a lot of time. So you have to really understand what the needs of the business are and then find the right resources because you have a small team. <laughs> your portfolio is <laughs> growing. We say that already. <laughs> right. So it's just like, how do you make sure that you're shepherding the right resources for your portfolio companies, right?
3: Yep, exactly. And my last plea to investors is invest in these companies um, as impact investors, I think so many people are focused on um, opportunities that just directly touch the base of the pyramid, and that's awesome. Ah. And I, I love yes. that you know we do a lot of that too. But these service providers are equally starved for capital. And so and a lot of people say, well, you're not really serving the BOP. But the reality is if we want these markets to get to a place where these businesses can grow, we need to invest in basic infrastructure. Yep. And human resource management is one of the things that is just entirely lacking across yep. the board.
2: Music to our ears. It really is true. I mean, those are the... You know, we often call them like the unsexy investments, totally. right? Yeah. Like human capital software—something that takes these folks from Tuesday, Thursday, you know, resume screens to an automated, you know, hiring pipeline. Exactly. Something like this is a game changer, not just for one organization, but really has, you know, has a huge reach to impact a ton of organizations, and thus the BOP. That's base of the pyramid for our listeners who may not be familiar with our jargon yes. we accidentally Sorry. slipped into here. <laughs> <laughs>
1: exactly. Well, we do have to take a short break. Thank you so much, Lauren. You, this has been fun. It's always good to see you. Yeah. Uh, we're going to take a short break, but stick with us. When we get back, we're going to speak with Lisbeth Peters, who is the managing partner at D Capital Partners. This is Dollars and Change on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. This is a business radio special presentation of Dollars and Change from SoCap 2017 in San Francisco. Here again are Sandy Hunt and Nick Ashburn. Welcome back to Dollars and Change. I'm Nick Ashburn. And I'm
2: Sandy Hunt.
1: And we are here on the floor of the Social Capital Markets Conference, or SOCAP, as you just heard. And we are turning to our next guest, who is Lisbeth Peters, who's the managing partner at D Capital Partners. Welcome to the show, Lisbeth.
4: Thank you so much for having me.
1: So First of all, let's start off with your SOCAP experience. What are you most excited about or or what's the most exciting conversation in the first half day that you've had?
4: (laughs) I think the most exciting thing about this conference is that you run into somebody who's doing something completely new and with a completely different angle than what's core to your mainstream business. Uh, I think the the most out there conversation recently was how to use Bitcoin in like Ah, ME. Um, for some of our projects in Africa. And you just sort of like start connecting dots that you thought were a mile away from each other in the
1: past. Wow. Well, that makes a lot of sense because we heard there are 3,000 people here. So I would hope that those conversations are at least a little diverse. But it's really cool (laughs) to see like, this is cutting edge information that, you know, on your day-to-day you may not get, but you come to a place like this and you're learning more about it. Absolutely. So let's let's talk a little bit about your core business. Mm-hmm. What is D Capital Partners?
4: So we're the impact investment advisory arm of the Dalberg Group. And we focus on providing investors. It could be a private high net worth individual all the way from an institutional investor um, with everything that they need in order to deploy their capital. Um, So it could be due diligence. It could be finding deals. It could be helping to monitor their investments. um, It could be just structuring, you know, like different transactions. Our main focus is on emerging markets. Um, because we believe that that's where there is a real need um,
2: for addressing challenges that deal
4: with low-income communities.
2: How did, you know, did this spin out of Dahlberg? Was there sort of a a need or a pain point that was identified where where this, you know, group where D-Capital was, you know, born?
4: Yeah, so from my own personal background in finance and then development finance with the World Bank, I joined Dahlberg to set up this group in 2010 when we really felt like the space of impact investing was growing and needed further intermediation that requires a combination of investment advisory expertise as well as strategy consulting and research that the group already offers through other
1: entities. And so, Dahlberg, just for our listeners, my understanding is it's an international development kind of implementation partner. Doing Consultancy. You know, consultants yeah, and, yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah. So just to help us, give our listeners the context as to how Decapital Partners may operate. Yeah, yeah,
4: yeah. We we like to think of ourselves as a broad platform um, of individuals uh, that all apply their professional skills into uh, making, you know, ad- addressing the biggest challenges in development uh, and international development. We do implementation, but we're mo- first and foremost a strategy consulting okay. and advisory platform. Um, what it, you know, like rolls out, you know, like we, we're very practical in our approach and we really apply private sector principles into the different issue areas uh, that we address.
2: Can you tell us a story about, you know, an organization that potentially, because I'm imagining there are some that both, you know, engage Dahlberg and then capital as mm-hmm. well. Can you tell mm-hmm. us about an organization that sort of in your mind, uh, you know, exemplifies exactly why you guys exist?
4: Yeah. So, um, I think one of the, the, the examples that comes to mind is one of our um, ag uh, clients okay. uh, in Tanzania, where we, with the Dahlberg Consulting work with one of the development agencies, we did a whole analysis of why the particular supply chain was breaking down and why things were not working out for particularly the smallholder farmers. Okay. And then we realized that there was a financing issue. Um, and that the local banks couldn't actually you know, like provide financing, mostly because uh, they couldn't wrap their heads around the risk um, of putting money in the hands of smallholder farmers. Sure. And they needed a very practical, um, detailed solution. So it's not only about, I'm giving you $100. But it's, I'm actually giving you a voucher to go and buy this particular seed and this particular fertilizer. And then halfway through the harvesting season, I'm going to give you some money so that you can hire somebody to go and harvest your crops. And then there is a contract with somebody who's going to offtake your produce, you know, like down the line. And then we're embedding a little bit of insurance so that the banker that is going to give you that $100 you know, like knows that their money is actually safe. And so when the Dahlberg team did the initial analysis, you know, like they identified the problem um, and then they had a whole number of different parties ranging from the local bank to the technical assistant provider to the smallholder farmer to actually the person who wanted to buy the grains to say like, well, what do we do now? And that's when Decapital came in. And so we've been working with all of the different parties and structuring it all. And uh, about three weeks from now, um, we have about 3,000 farmers that will get their seeds and their fertilizers wow, to fantastic. start planting.
1: That's so great. Great. And, great story. And I'm reminded at the different parts of your story, um, from the the voucher to the actual capital that helped them purchase the seed to the, the insurance, too. I'm struck by a concept that we've been working on in, in innovative finance, Correct. which for our listeners, um, there's an estimated... $2 trillion shortfall per year to achieve the sustainable development goals um, that the United Nations agreed to and, um, you know, to eradicate poverty primarily, broadly defined. And, and, the, it,
2: and the shortfall, just to really make sure that, that that's clear to our listeners, says we there's already a certain amount of money going to aid, government money, philanthropic money. This is the gap. This is sort of like the, the need that still remains. And that's where yeah. business comes in.
1: Right. And so, you know, thinking of those different models that you just described that D Capital partners has been involved in it reminds me of this concept of innovative finance like how are we using yeah. private sector capital to achieve this and and not sometimes it takes just four kinds of debt and equity types of structures but Correct. now we're talking about insurance and, and other yep. really cool things is that where d capital partners also plays
4: a hundred percent and i think it's those kind of like multi-stakeholder partnerships that at a transactional level you need to bring them together um and and innovate around the terms of the transaction, but also how you look at success and the incentives across the different partners and the risks, just like with the insurance. So, you know, like the risk of a local bank, you know, like is higher than a development actor, you know, like for a number of reasons. Um, And how can you take that away? And you can give them a guarantee, but you can also just, you know, like have the farmer buy insurance and, you know, like and that's a commercial solution to right. address the same problem. And I think we've seen a number of really cool innovative financing transactions like that popping up. Uh, another one that comes to mind is around the impact bonds and the impact bond construct. Mm-hmm. And we've just recently applied that to global health um, with the first cataract surgery uh, unit being built in Cameroon, um, where a number of philanthropic uh, donors, Fred Hollows, uh, and Sidesavers, and the Hilton Foundation came up with the original money, but said, rather than just giving this up front and this being a one-time you know, like a donation, how about we use this to bring in other investors? And we teach them you know, like what the milestones are for something like cataract surgery to become self-sustainable over time. And we put that pressure around effectiveness and efficiency on the hospital. You know, like to ensure that that they're performing and that they're getting to a level, you know, level of excellence that we in a normal world would expect, you know, like of hospitals and of the private sector. Um, And so that's what we call our cataract, uh, Cameroon cataract performance bond. Cameroon
1: cataract performance. It is a mouthful. <laughs> it is a mouthful,
4: yes. <laughs> we should put the
2: country first. <laughs> and so as I listen, this is this is hard work, right? This is very... But exciting work. Oh, I can totally. see you light up
1: when you talk about That's it. That's true. Our <laughs> listeners
2: can see that, but let it, let it not be lost on them. Yes, how excited you are talking about the work. But, and we, we've heard this as well from Liesl. We just talked to someone from Blue Haven you know, you're de-risking. You're really putting in sort of the time and energy to understand these things. And once this model's out there, you know, okay, fascinating. Now we know what it takes to put together a bond like this around the build of a hospital or um, how to finance these farmers in this more innovative way. So, you know, this is expensive work. Consulting's expensive. Talk to us about the, you know, the finances of making your organization work. Yeah,
4: um, I think it's interesting because I started DeCapital with coming from the private equity world um, and then spending some time, you know, like in more mainstream development and realizing that in, in mainstream commercial private equity, you get about 90 cents to the dollar that goes to the organization that creates the economic value. And in a lot of development settings and social finance, you know, like settings, it's probably like 10 to 20 cents to the dollar. Um, And so, you know, like our business model is all about using that gap and that differential to make a difference. And, you know, like we don't get paid unless we create the efficiencies and the effectiveness in the system that allows us to also, you know, like um, make a living, you know, like as it were. And I think that's very important for people to realize is that within the impact investing community, there is a lot of talk about uh, managers' compensation, intermediation, you know, like being expensive, high transaction costs, etc. But the real opportunity cost is actually the fact that people are just throwing money out there that is not effectively reaching its destination and therefore in the long term actually doesn't have the impact that it should have.
1: You're listening to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. And we're here at the Social Capital Markets Conference with Lisbeth Peters, managing partner at D Capital Partners.
2: And so like some of our other guests who work at a systems level, right, we would describe your work at a systems level. You're not, you know, at at the enterprise, interacting with the individuals day to day. You have a chance to see some trends, mm-hmm. you know, some really interesting things. And it's always great to hear from someone who has that bird's eye view. What are some you know, What are some of the trends that you're seeing um, in the emerging markets, mm-hmm. um, whether they're sectors or business practices that are proving fruitful or challenging? Tell us what mm-hmm. you're seeing.
4: Yeah, I think there's a lot of excitement um, of that big, more institutional impact capital, you know, like looking to get deployed. And what we're seeing is a lot of that getting directed to the more mainstream sectors that I would, you know, like say, so infrastructure, big infrastructure, you know, like big tech is a big buzzword, uh, large, you know, like uh, relatively well-structured private equity transactions. Um, And I think that's good. uh, But there is a little bit of a danger um, that we are not really applying all of the um, ESG frameworks around that. And especially in emerging markets, it will be very important to continue to have the discipline around governance. And around, you know, like minimum requirements on environmental issues and social issues, particularly. I mean, we, we've seen examples like Uber and what have you not. Yep. And when you talk about HR practices and put that in place in a factory, you know, like in Zambia with 3,000 people, sure. you know, like you're all of a sudden starting to talk about a very different context.
1: Yeah. Well, and we have an opportunity in emerging markets. I mean, they're building their own businesses and this capital is coming in to reset, not not recreate the same issues that we, we might have had here in Western Europe or in the U.S., right?
2: Correct. Yeah, we just heard, as we were talking to Lauren Cochran and she's saying, when we invest our our capital from Blue Haven, we're asking these questions along the way. And to your point, Nick, right, then it doesn't need to be corrected. Correct. Right. This was a demanded expectation and a need to be met all along the way. I'm just amazed and delighted how much we're talking about human capital, um, really, because this is, I think, the, you know, Lauren put it well, that sort of, this is the second thing people say after we need capital, if you push them on, like, but what what do you really need for your business to run well? It is this human capital piece. So I'm very intrigued to see how this conversation evolves. When it comes to human capital, we're talking about hiring practices, management practices, labor relations. What are some of the big, uh, you know, the biggest challenges or the biggest missteps you're seeing in this space? I think uh, you're pointing at
4: the exact right, you know, like issue. Uh, human. Capital and talent is an investment, uh, and I think one of the biggest concerns that we hear from a lot of partners that we work with on the continent is that how can you justify making the investment that's required in the human capital when it then flees? And I think at Dahlberg, you like know, the like the brain drain, especially the brain right? drain. You know, like you spend two or three years, you know, like training up people and making lots of investments, and then they go to the competition. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's a very and then commercial they come to Wharton and then they come further
2: <laughs>
4: and then they don't come back to the continent you know like how do we deal with that and i think our philosophy is that you have to you have to make that investment and yeah. it will come back and you know they become our clients they become you know like leaders they become CEOs we need 10,000 times more people making the investments that we make on a day-to-day basis in the young emerging talent mm-hmm. in emerging markets especially sub-saharan africa and we can't do enough all by ourselves so we all have to do it
2: and and one thing I would add to that and I'm going to let Nick ask the last question of the segment is you know when you develop those skills as the entrepreneur as the manager as the founder yes you may have the brain drain but you still have the skills right you still know how to like train employees how to manage talent that doesn't all flee and you know I think it's really great that the dialogue is sort of pushing folks on that I think it's it's just going to lead to a lot more sustainability not from an environmental standpoint but just you know a, a lower risk adjusted return having a, a less you know a less uh, volatile exactly. you know, climate
4: and it's one of the most rewarding things i think over the last seven years running capital is to have a team of like two-thirds you know like africans that have come from a background you know like somewhere in a village and seeing them make presentations to like a usa senior executive or like one of the commercial banking partners we work with in london and just like you know like Kicking ass. Yes. It's amazing. <laughs> love it. I love, it. No, love it's, it. It's such
1: great work. It's super exciting. And thank you so much for joining us.
4: An absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: We've been speaking with Lisbeth Peters, who is managing partner at D Capital Partners. And we are here on the floor of the Social Capital Markets Conference, and this is Dollars and Change on Business Radio powered by the Wharton School. We are going to move on to our next guest. Our
0: last guest. And our last guest.
1: <laughs> but someone who is an absolute stalwart in the industry. Yes. Uh, we're going to be speaking with Fran Siegel, Executive Director of the U.S. Impact Investing Alliance. Welcome to the show, Fran.
0: Delighted to be here today.
1: <laughs> so, Fran, you again, you really have been in this space for a while. We're celebrating the 10th anniversary of SOCAP, which is also the 10th anniversary of impact investing being coined as a phrase. So, Fran, tell us about your role um, currently in the industry with the US Impact Investing Alliance and where you've seen the industry evolve over the last
0: 10 years. Sure. So I am the new executive director, the inaugural executive director of the U.S. Impact Investing Alliance, which is a field building organization dedicated to increasing the flow of capital to impact investing. Our long-term vision, so I'll ask your retrospective question in a moment, but our prospective vision is to put measurable social and environmental impact at the center of all investment decisions alongside risk and financial return, and we do that in a couple different ways. Uh, we have the three pillar strategy: the first is to create an enabling policy environment for impact investing and I'm happy to chat about that if that 's of interest yeah uh, the second is to uh, catalyze the flow of institutional capital for impact. So the larger pools of money. Larger pools of money. So first P- focusing pension on- Pension money, endowment money. Foundations and okay. donor advised funds okay. to start with an eye toward pension funds okay. uh, and the enormous assets that they manage on behalf of their pensioners. And then the third is movement building. Um, and so happy to talk in more detail about any of those as you, as based on your interest. Sure, Absolutely. sure. We'll dive
2: into some specific questions.
0: So- you have been around the industry
1: though for a little while, so tell us about like what you're most struck by. You know, the tenor of the conversation today. I mean, ten years ago we probably weren't even thinking about pension funds.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> so, no. so wh- how do you feel about? I mean, just sort of your opinion. I-, I love to. I'd love to pick your brain on that.
0: Yeah. So, SoCap is ten years old. Yeah. Uh, the the term was coined, as you said, in two thousand and seven, two thousand and eight, at Bellagio.
2: The term impact investing. The term okay. impact investing,
0: although. Uh, investing for impact has been around since the you know, the 19th century and religious investors, right. uh, community development, finance has been around since the 70s, microfinance has been around since the 70s. So there's been a lot of work that sort of led up to the coining of the term. Um, 10 years ago at SoCap, it was very much focused on impact entrepreneurs and a startup mentality. Um, 10 years later, there is a much more evolved ecosystem. There are a range of investors, so asset owners, in addition to the institutional asset owners that we talked about, there are high net worth individuals and even retail investors Mm -hmm. that are getting into the mix. And then on the investee side, we we still have the startups, but we have more mid-market companies. Uh, We even have B Corps going public uh, and benefit corporations uh, that are going public. And so it's been an incredible uh, journey in that regard. I've also been thinking a lot lately about the connective tissue that connects the supply of and the demand for capital. Yes. And the evolution of intermediaries. And by that I mean wealth advisors, broker dealers, investment bankers. Yeah. As well as asset managers. So venture capital funds, private debt funds, public funds. Um, as well as some of the connective tissue around um, supportive functions that allow capital to flow. And by that I mean. Uh, you know, metric measurement, reporting, data, research, some of the great work that you folks do at Wharton in that regard has been, you know, incredibly catalytic um, and important, as well as policy, which is one of the areas of focus for the alliance. And that's
1: that's where I wanted to go next, because I've heard you speak a couple of times in your role as um, the executive director of the U.S. Impact Investing Alliance, that regardless of our current sort of political state or where you fall on the political spectrum, that impact investing really resonates sort of on both sides of the aisle here in the U.S. Can you tell us a little more about that?
0: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So this is a very divided time in Washington, uh, to say the least. And we really believe that uh, impact investing is something that can bring folks together across the aisle in a couple of different areas. Um, If you look at... uh, something like waning economic dynamism um, in the United States and income inequality, especially in rural and urban communities. That has given rise to some political shifts that are manifested now in Washington. And so trying to understand how we can support domestic, rural, and urban communities with impact investment, with tax incentives, with other kinds of infrastructure, thoughtful infrastructure, um, you know, human capital aligned infrastructure are ways to kind of rebuild um, rural communities, rebuild urban communities in a way that hopefully will improve the state of income inequality in this country.
2: And Fran, can you tell us a story, whether whether one that's actually happened or one that you imagine and hope happens, that actually can paint this picture of that, you know, of what you just described for mm-hmm. our listeners? Mm-hmm. So, you know, what would impact investing look like in a community, let's say an urban community, mm-hmm. um, that would have this sort of trickle-down impact in a big, big way? Yeah.
0: So I can I can talk about it through the lens of a, a policy that we've had our eye on. Great. There's a group called um, EIG, the Economic Innovation Group. It's a nonpartisan policy shop that has put forth a piece of legislation that is live called the Investing in Opportunity Act. It seeks to harvest capital that has been uh, capital gains uh, from the public market stock run up. Which and we're in a
1: bull market right now. We're in an
0: incredible bull market right now, and you're starting to see a lot of donations to donor-advised fund and other things sure. as folks yep. try to harvest those gains. Yep. So this is a uh, an act that would allow... It, it, it's a capital gains deferral and modest step-down scheme that encourages long-term investment. So harvesting those public asset investments and moving them into low-to-moderate-income communities uh, that governors and the Treasury Department would have... Um, uh, input in to identify communities in their state uh, that could be could benefit from this uh, capital and it's
2: and where does the capital go with that infusion of capital is it into a fund that's directly invested is it into CDFI type stuff it could
0: be into CDFIs they they call. Um, Uh, they talk about opportunity zones and opportunity funds. And so a CDFI, for example, could uh, raise an opportunity fund from these appreciated assets um, that, again, the capital gains are deferred, and then there is a cost-basis step-down that encourages uh, folks to invest for the long term. So something like that could be we see as potentially catalytic for communities, could drive capital into rural communities. You asked about a specific example. There's been an incredible... um, uh, confluence of for-profit and philanthropic investors into Detroit yep. uh, to try to rebuild inner-city right. Detroit. Yeah. Uh, so that would be an
2: example. And I'm particularly struck by what you said, and we've heard it from others, this this um, aspect of time of needing to have that longer runway. It sounds like you're talking about 5, 10, 15 years, right? So it's really taking a look at the investments with that longer horizon because you can make some very great social impact bets when you're able to kind of look, look at that next decade or so. Mm-hmm.
1: Fran, so I'm from Kansas, so we're thinking about rural areas. You know, we live in Philadelphia, a very dense urban area, but, you know, high poverty rate. But then thinking of the rural areas, why, from a policy perspective or, you know, thinking, how does this affect their day-to-day lives? Like, in my hometown of Emporia, Kansas, like, why why do these issues matter to them?
0: Partially, uh, the issue is around lack of ability to um, gain access to quality jobs, um, what we're seeing is that there's less migration across state lines, less than ever before. Is this,
2: that, I yeah, have so not heard that. That's
0: part of the, this um, EIG data that talks about waning economic dynamism, that venture capital goes to Massachusetts, California, New York, right. doesn't get funded um, to entrepreneurs who are trying to assist folks in rural communities and urban communities. And so um, this idea about, Um, lack of mobility also is something that is, I think, enhancing income inequality. And so when we look at um, rural communities around farming, for example, could there be access to more greater access to um, CapEx and OPEX, uh, long-term capital to try to rebuild some of these communities and create more economic opportunities for citizens? Right. And we've heard
2: time and time again, people who live there, people who know the issues, you know, folks who are innovating from the ground often do it best. You know, we, he- we just heard Blue Haven saying, we're not investing in entrepreneurs living in San Francisco, solving problems in Africa. So if you can't get the capital to fly over states or to Emporia, Kansas, <laughs> entrepreneurs who know what works in Emporia, Kansas, really is going to limit that opportunity. Mm-hmm.
1: And so friend, how important are partnerships to the work that you're doing? And how do you think about building coalitions to drive forward this agenda?
0: Sure. So in our ecosystem, in the impact investing ecosystem, there are a range of network players who have been working hard to build the space. And so one of the things that we developed uh, and announced at our launch in July in Chicago was an industry advisory council of network members. And so those include the GIN, uh, U.S. SIF, Mission Investors Exchange, Confluence, uh, Tonic, Investor Circle... Um,
1: People we'd probably all run into here at SoCal. Yeah, yeah,
0: a range of folks, uh, intentional endowment um, network, and others to try to uh, figure out how we can lift up the existing ecosystem players, coordinate where appropriate, and gap fill where needed. And so, an example might be in Washington having a unified voice around the role that private capital can play for public good to Congress. So that um, we're kind of a a no-conflict educator and engager of Congress to explore all the ways that we can partner to try to create what we consider impact outcomes, what they consider to be policy outcomes. And so that's an example where coordination and gap filling comes into place, especially in the policy area, among others. Yeah. And what what conversations are exciting you here at SOCAP? What do you see the value? You're an ecosystem
2: builder. You're making all these plays into sort of building these communities and this connective tissue. What's fun about being here?
0: A range of, of, of things are exciting to be here every year. I mean, these are folks who have committed their careers and their lives to the impact work. I'm fascinated to see how things have changed over time, which is kind of where we started, the mainstreaming of impact investing and kind of holding the center around impact as that happens, Um, making impact, democratizing access to impact investing. So particularly interested in how retail investors and pensioners can get involved in impact investing. But also, uh, I'm, I'm excited when I'm at SOCAP about focusing on the impact entrepreneurs and the actual impact. We focus so much on the money, oftentimes, but I'm. I think that we need to spend more time on the demand side. So, who's creating that outcome? F- uh, outcomes for whom? And that's why we're here. Yeah, is we're here, but because of the impact.
1: And on the impact entrepreneur side, I mean, I think it makes a lot of sense to think about the the startup entrepreneurs, and that's we're in Silicon Valley in San Francisco. Like that's sort of the sexy side of things. But then there's also the corporates too. So. Um, we don't see that as much here at SoCap, but that must play into your thinking when you're thinking about impact investing broadly across the U.S., right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So on a on a couple of different fronts, we focus on impact investing at the Alliance across at the asset class spectrum, so cash to the public markets to the private markets. So we're very much in the domain of the private markets here at SoCap, but there's you know 250 trillion dollars in the capital markets, and if we want to create a world that we want to pass on to our kids and our grandkids. We need to align all of our capital for impact. Grant dollars and government aid alone are not going to do it. And so um, focusing more uh, um, recently on the public markets and environmental, social, and governance factors and how public companies can really create impact and also mitigate risk by taking ESG, environmental, social, governance factors, into account.
1: Yeah, and and this space is so multi-stakeholder... Um, it's a big tent, and I think we've intentionally left it pretty big and broad for great reasons. What do you think, I mean, when you leave SoCap, what's, like, what's on your first to-do list?
0: What's on my first to-do list? So we are gathering um, in a two weeks, 20 foundation presidents focused on impact investing who seek to deepen the practice of impact investing in their, through their endowment. So that is something that's on my mind. Fantastic. Con- yeah. That- it's, it's, a, it's an incredible group of leaders. Um, we're also focused on uh, policy and uh, continuing to engage and educate Congress around, especially as tax reform right. um, is front in of flux. mind. Yeah, flux, flux, and it's a once-in-a-generation lifetime, as we've read, about is, yeah. reforming taxes and can we... Um, have some input that would, would incent private capital to flow to some places where there are market failures in this country. Yeah. yeah,
2: excellent. Well, Fran, we could talk to you all day long about this exciting stuff and about the ecosystem, but we are sadly at the end of our show here from the floor of SOCAP. We've had so much fun.
1: Absolutely. I mean, we've talked to such a broad range of folks. Like, It's just been really exciting. And, and the the energy is palpable, and we're really excited. So thank you so much, Fran, for joining us. Yes. Um,
2: we hope for our listeners, this is a little taste of what it's like to be at SOCAP.
1: Absolutely. Well, we've been speaking with Fran Siegel, who is the executive director of the U.S. Impact Investing Alliance. This has been Sandy Hunt and Nick Ashburn on Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 111. <laughs>